please help me give a warm welcome to Steve Scafidi. Thank you all very much for uh, your welcome. I've been, uh, I've heard that y'all have come mostly on Sunday, and so I'm not the only one who's probably walking around in kind of happy bewilderment. I keep waiting for my boss to come through the door and say, there you are. Um, thank you for uh, making me feel welcome. And uh, there are woodworkers here from the, the Vermont School, which is really a delight to me that there are woodworkers who come to a poetry reading because I have some of my best friends who are woodworkers. I've known them for 20 years and they've never come to my poetry. <laughs> They're like, no. <laughs> and that's just fine. Um, I'd like to uh, begin, since it is springtime, and in West Virginia, where I'm from, I work as a cabinet maker, uh, and I teach sometimes. Spring is on, you know, and, and all the trees, and uh, it was funny to drive up here and see things close, and, uh, but there's still all kinds of, of, of signs of the reality. I wanted just to read a poem uh, by a man named Cesar Vallejo, the great Peruvian poet. Uh, that to me is one of the greatest springtime poems. It's called Masses. When the battle was over and the fighter was dead, a man came toward him and, and said to him, Do not die, I love you so. But the corpse, it was sad, went on dying. And two came near and told him again and again, Do not leave us, courage, return to life. But the corpse, it was sad, went on dying. Twenty arrived, a hundred, a thousand, five hundred thousand, shouting, so much love and it could do nothing against death. But the corpse, it was sad, went on dying. Millions of persons stood around him, all speaking the same thing. Stay here, brother. But the corpse, it was sad, went on dying. Then all the men on earth stood around him. The corpse looked at them sadly, deeply moved. He sat up slowly, put his arm around the first man, started to walk. This first poem I'll read uh, of my own um, is called Sometimes There's a Shit Smell Everywhere, which is true about life, I think, uh, sometimes. but. This is a poem about the shop where I work, which is an old cooling barn on a dairy farm that does no, has no cows anymore. It was turned into a cabinet shop about 50 years ago. And I've worked there for 28 of those years since I was 19. And um, anyway, when, you, when you're so associated with a place that you sort of, your identity is a part of it, um, for good or ill, you know, uh, this is a poem of such a place. And I guess I, I come to know it best, perhaps, by smell. Sometimes there's a shit smell everywhere when a breeze catches fumes rising from a crack in the septic. And who we, we say, who was that? Sometimes skunks fight under the floorboards at night. And when you walk in in the morning, you begin to reek of it. And by the end of the day, you are fouled with that deep musk of skunk. And sometimes, sanding a small eucalyptus box made in China a hundred years ago, the astringency of the medicine tree fills the barn and clears your head. 
We cooked chicken and beans, venison stew and cornbread and sausage, and Bill's wife sent him to work today with three shrimps covered in coconut sauce. But mostly it is coffee in the air or the peppery, sharp odor of sawn walnut that smells purple. Mahogany dust has little claws that tear your eyes and grip at your insides. And sometimes we get what, what is called ass pine, which stinks when you cut it and you have to run away a little and say, damn. <laughs> but since I was a boy, it is another smell. The ordinary fragrance of this place, like the pews of a chapel. Something sober and holy, despite the cat piss or all of the things we say. It smells like light, mostly. What stained glass looks like like a story being told, the one where you live in one place until you die. <clears throat> I do have friends at the shop who are cabinet makers who do come to my poetry readings, though. I love all of them, but... <clears throat> this is a poem um, I wrote when uh, my daughter was born. And uh, the only thing to know as I read it is it's addressing a baby and an old woman at the same time. <clears throat> so it's called, To an Old Woman in the Air. As you fly over my grave with your jetpack on turbo to play bingo and Fargo, as your children lift up their children to point at the nearby moon tonight, as you travel toward us who lay lost in death, think of your mother now sleeping with you upstairs. Think of your father asleep on the sofa with a workbook propped on his bony knees. Think of the small overlooked details of who we were once. Your mother's golden bangs almost cut in a straight line that she trimmed with scissors earlier in the round mirror by the kitchen where water cooked in the tea kettle and my fingertips stained dark walnut from working all day. Think of the way your body wiggled in the bath an hour ago. You are older now than I ever was. I am guessing you have suffered. I am hoping days of unexplained joy ambushed you at every turn and that your life is saturated with the secret water of days that will always be just a part of a larger water, more powerful than the Shenandoah, beside which your mother and I lived before you were born. I hope the river of your days rushing by grows more graceful as you age. I hope as you fly over our grave today with your jetpack on low, the day is bright and clear and the traffic through the trees is just sparrows and leaves. Old woman, I can hear you calling and your mother turning to you right now, this instant. We are all awake now. We are long gone. Baby, old lady, go on. <clears throat> Recently, um, I got interested in Abraham Lincoln <clears throat> And I couldn't exactly tell you why, but that I, I was stuck and uh, I couldn't write and I didn't know what I was doing. And I started writing a little nonsense poem about Abraham Lincoln on a 10 minute break at work because that's all I had open to me was that little secret window of a 10 minute break at work. And, um, and something, you know, that little joy and the things that you love 
which for me are, are the magic of words making no sense, making sense suddenly, and a music to boot. Uh, so I wrote uh, about 300 of these little poems about Abraham Lincoln. And I, I published, um, I just published a little book of about 40 of them. Um, I wanted to read one of them to you. Uh, Abraham Lincoln's son, Robert Lincoln, was the only one of that immediate family who survived into the 20th century. Um, and he was the Secretary of War under President Garfield and President Arthur. He was there at the dedication of the Lincoln Memorial. I have this beautiful photograph of Robert Lincoln as an old man looking behind him, almost like a candid photo, though I imagine in the 1920s there weren't candid pictures, but just he looks like a boy to me. I guess there's that theme of the, the old man and the boy at once, but anyway. Uh, in 1909, the, the Lincoln penny came out. I love that each of us have um, a portrait of the man in our pockets, probably. Anyway, um, this is a poem about Robert Lincoln that I wrote. Um, it, it takes place in 1909. It's simply called The Coin. <clears throat> the only souvenir Robert clung to was a copper penny from the first minting in 1909, where his father's face gazed in profile on one side, dark sheaves of wheat on the other, which was presented to him by President Taft one day on the rainy high steps of the treasury. Every morning the coin was exchanged from watch pocket to watch pocket as he fumbled into the day's new suit. Sometimes in the middle of dinner surrounded by ambassadors and high-ranking assistants to the various deputies of the War Department, he would reach quietly for the coin to graze the outline of the face with his thumb. Sometimes the difference between the official coin of the realm and his father's scraggly black beard was too much, and for days and weeks he would not look there, although in loneliness four times he swallowed it, passed it, found it, and placed it again into his pocket. Once in Philadelphia, he lost it and backtracked the streets until dawn with a lantern looking down until he found it, shining in the deep groove between two cobblestones on Merker Street. He talked to it in the dark of February as if it could understand his longing. And when Robert died, this miniature portrait, worth so little, was tucked into his hand. It was just enough to pay the man who runs the rickety ferry that crosses the Potomac twice a day, even today, to Arlington Cemetery. When I was writing these poems, uh, um, people would ask what, are, what you're doing, and uh, I would say sometimes, well, I'm writing a, um, a magical biography of Abraham Lincoln. And he said, he said, oh, you're making it up. I said, yeah, that, that's right. <laughs> I think if there's one thing that poets are known for that's a positive thing is that um, we do pay attention to small things and ordinary things. And um, I don't think it's just poets, by all means. Um, but maybe we like to make something of it. 
Uh, this is um, this poem is like a is a riddle essentially, and I say the answer at the end. Um, but I hope it's enjoyable anyway, without knowing exactly what I'm getting at. Um, it's called the taste of it. Really, a poem about the most ordinary thing I know. The taste of it. The taste of it like water in paradise. Her nipple swirling like a chocolate in the mouth. The bump of it like blood coursing in the body. What you guess when thrust meets thrust in the darkness. What tastes plain somehow like the air when you gasp. The reaching back to days on days that blur with plenitude so that the details and the sorrow and the nail you stepped on disappear and it is only blue sky and the stars you can taste. Knowing what you've always wanted has come and sizzles on the tongue. This thing that is so difficult to name, this sting of flame that never hurt me, the taste of water when you are thirsty. Y'all doing all right? Okay. Uh, I had a couple nights ago, right before I left, I had a dream that I jumped out of an airplane, and uh, and I, I didn't have anything with me. I was just dressed like I am now, a little less formal. But I had a, a ripcord in my hand, and I was falling, and there was a guy next to me. I said, and I was really like, I was talking to someone in my living room. I was like, what do I do with this? He was like, just hook it to your belt loop. <laughs> and so I have a little, on my hen house door, I have a little latch thing. that. So I used that. I just hooked it there. I was like, yeah, oh, thank you. And we fell. We plummeted toward the trees. And it was very nice. And uh, I remember them rising up at me. And I was like, oh, something should happen. I remember grabbing onto the ripcord and pushing a button and a, a parachute appearing from it. And I remember that I landed down. I, I just kind of flew over the treetops and I flew into the trees right into a shallow river and I just was like perfect and I got up and I I went on with my day and I realized that was my arrival here before I got here it's so nice it was exactly like this river here in these trees so I love what happens when I sleep and uh, and when we sleep the world just falls apart sometimes into pieces and it's okay <clears throat> This is a poem called, If Every Night You Sleep, You Die. <clears throat> if Every Night You Sleep, You Die. A house comes over the mountain singing the blues, and the ghost of Robert Johnson hollers, and the ghost of his guitar lies in the back of the dark, supercharged blue Cadillac. He swerves as he guns to the right of the house coming over the mountain too fast, much too fast. And a rocket whispers by, this young man heading back to Mississippi. And the rocket zooming wobbles as it goes, and Joseph and Mary laugh while the baby Jesus combs his black pompadour with one hand on the controls. And maybe every time you sleep, you die and a magnet at the very center of the universe pulls the house over the mountain and the mountain follows and the void of space fills with objects as lakes and possums arc over nothing and join the moon and all the paintings of Willem de Kooning spin ferocious alongside carburetors and refrigerators from junkyards and the salad fork of a once great restaurant glimmers in the passing light of the passing sun gone with the death-stained elegant dress Audrey Hepburn 
Byron was buried in, and a thousand dogs chasing one cat bark and bark as the jungle of Costa Rica floats by like a planet, and the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve holding on tightly to the frail, bowed end of a young willow tree goes by your house like a flying saucer, and sausage on a grill sizzles still heading onward, and a young woman out sweeping the parking lot of a 7-Eleven laughs as the broom leaps from her small startled hands. I have to read a poem. Um, when my when my uh, first when my wife was pregnant with our first child, um, a boy uh, a couple towns over from us um, was uh, raped and murdered, and I could not um, get the fact of that out of my head for the ten months, nine ten months that my wife was pregnant, and so without anyone knowing this, I went silently nuts and I wrote a poem every single night more than once many nights because I could not I could not have I couldn't bring my baby into a world where this was going to happen and so I don't know what I was doing but I was trying to calm myself down and make sense of the of, of uh, the, what you cannot make sense of and so um, I did I wrote over a hundred discrete individual poems to get at something. And I'm going to read the one that I saved, um, the one that I like, um, and the one that helped me. Um, helped me. And I do appreciate that. I feel like uh, this is the poem I wrote that made me happy that I ever bothered to write poems in the first place. Because when you're 48 years old and you have a mortgage, etc., the idea of writing poems to me, there's a great, there's a part of me that it's undeniably angry. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? You've been devoted your life to writing poems for 30 years, and you've only just now noticed. <laughs> well, this is one I'm very happy that I have. <clears throat> it's called um, The Boy Inside the Pumpkin. It begins, the story I just told you appears, but it begins strangely. The Boy Inside the Pumpkin. At 530 pounds, it won the blue ribbon at the Frederick County Fair. And because all such vegetables are too bitter to eat, something had to be done. And it was decided to haul the pumpkin to the river. And the boy inside the pumpkin, meanwhile, lay curled in the dark mash while they rolled it to the edge of the tailgate and heaved it to the ground. And he must have been in there all spring and all summer. And through the long, hot hours, must have grown restless in the goop, although he looked almost peaceful, lying naked by the river, among the broken loaves and the seeds where the ambulance drivers stood on their knees, amazed, beside the boy, opening his eyes, as the slow Potomac moved to the Chesapeake Bay in the ocean, where the waves make their way to every coast in the world. And the boy inside the pumpkin lies quietly in this world, like a fact of the unlikely. And the most unlikely things happen every day in this world. And we go on unchanged. And a body was found on a baseball diamond in Frederick, Maryland last spring, wearing only a t-shirt, face down with both arms underneath the body. And the details are listed in the metro section of the Washington Post. And so when you read about the child, you learn he was only nine years old and had a faint birthmark, the exact shape of Kentucky on the small of his back. 
and could talk like a duck when he wanted to. And you learn the most unspeakable things in the slender metro section of the Washington Post. And it corrupts your sense of the world to know how often the impossible happens upon us without mercy. And it is not the fit subject of poetry, and it is offensive to redeem the horror of that boy's last hours. But I can't stop trying to salvage something from the murderous and the poisonous. And last spring, some small, ordinary blossom grew suddenly more gigantic every day. And the boy inside the vine became the boy inside the pumpkin, who became a turning in the darkness no one noticed. Although for a week, hundreds of people at the fair stroked the fat sides of the pumpkin and were amazed. And a boy leans up on his elbows now in the moss beside the river and looks around bewildered and asks for his mother and his father and they are delivered, amazed. And these things never happen. They happen every day. Um, here's something different. When my wife did finally have uh, our child, I, I, I remember being in the delivery room and going, I, I couldn't believe it. You know, I, I'd known this woman since she, we were kids, since she was 15. And I didn't know about that she could do this. And I didn't know either. I couldn't believe that this had been going on for so long. A long time. And I only just now saw it. And I was like, oh, I couldn't believe it. And uh, you still can't believe it. And so this is a poem about, from my perspective, it's just simply called Witness to the Work. If I could knock a house down with my crotch, or pull a train cross country with a little string tied to my cock, well then that would be something. Not much, but at least something. If I could breathe in sharply now and swallow the western half of Portugal with its bright umbrellas and pointy cathedrals and its statues of Fernando Pessoa, it might be the same. If I could just think of the pain, I would fall over like a lettuce. As it is, a great and growing awe comes between us now, and we do not speak of it. Months pass, more months. She cries out suddenly, and her cries are deep like nothing I've ever heard, and the car zigzags, and we are there. Then the hours pass, filled with a difficult kind of grace, and she pushes that baby out of her, and the baby finally says, okay, and galumph, just like that, this lump of breath falls into the world and is lifted to her mother's breast. And she is crying, and people are snipping and cutting, saying, Oh, isn't she? Isn't she? And the room is spinning hard, and this spinning spins the earth, and the earth spins faster. And I always thought that life was like a blue donkey named Disaster, that we ride to death and whisper to. Now I know it is this bloody, holy work the mothers do. All right, I'm almost done. Um, hopefully you're with me. Um, I want to read something. All right, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to read just two more poems. Um, and I want to read another poem that's not mine. Um, I think a writer is in trouble when he's tired of his own voice. <laughs> I am there. 
And so I've been very quiet as a writer lately. And I do hope while I'm here for this week that I can continue to be quiet and listen to y'all and listen and be useful to you by being quiet. Um, but I have two more poems. Um, one um, is by uh, Carlos Drummond de Andrade, the, the uh, Brazilian poet and uh, fabulous poet. I've been sad lately, I must say, but not as sad as this poem might make you think because it is called Don't Kill Yourself. <laughs> I'm not that sad, and this isn't some sign that anyone should worry about me. I'm quite happy person. But I love this poem. Uh, on a moody day like this, yeah, I, I, one reason you're a poet is, yeah, you think about it. Oh, God damn it, I've, what's wrong with me? I'm just going to jump in the river. <laughs> That's a joke, but it's for me it is, for others I know, and for me at other times it was not a joke. So there's something about sorrow that's a pleasure for me now, because I'm not so sad, but uh, that makes me really love this poem. <clears throat> Elizabeth Bishop translated it. Uh, don't kill yourself. And he's talking to himself. Carlos, keep calm. Love is what you're seeing now. Today a kiss, tomorrow no kiss. Day after tomorrow Sunday, and nobody knows what will happen Monday. It's useless to resist or to commit suicide. Don't kill yourself. Don't kill yourself. Keep all of yourself for the nuptials coming. Nobody knows when, that is, if they ever come. Love, Carlos, Tellurian, spent the night with you, and now your insides are raising an ineffable racket. Prayers, Victrolas, saints crossing themselves, ads for a better soap, a racket of which nobody knows the why or wherefore. In the meantime, you go on your way, vertical, melancholy. You're the palm tree. You're the cry nobody heard in the theater. And all the lights went out. Love in the dark, no. Love in the daylight is always sad. Sad, Carlos, my boy. But tell it to nobody. Nobody knows, nor shall know. Okay, I'm going to read one final poem. Um, I want to thank you all for being here and bearing with me. It's been a uh, it's been a delight. This is a poem about um, where I live. There's a um, a mountain nearby where a few of my friends live. And, and one day, one of the guys that used to work at my shop, he came in and he said, man, there's a, there's a crow flying around. He just appeared. He's landing on all of our porches. He has a lot to say. I said, what do you mean? What's he doing? He's only speaking English. So <laughs> he did disappear suddenly, too. I don't know if someone captured him or he flew off. but. This is what I did about it. This is a poem called um, The Hillbilly Breakdance and the Talking Crow. In the very beginning of this, there's something rude that happens. And hopefully you can forgive that person for what he says. Um, I think he redeems himself later. But it starts kind of shockingly. So the school bus skids around the mountain and kills my friend's dog almost instantly. And Lester, in the back seat, sticks his face out the window to say, don't eat that dog, he's dead meat. 
and laughs, and that was a long ago, and, and Lester lives in the mountain ghetto where the rich have not yet ruined the land with their paper mansions, and he is hillbilly wild as a teenager and learns to break dance and locks and pops and turns and rocks like a robot on summer nights, drunk under the Christmas lights of his back porch, where we watch as Lester works through his routine. And once he moonwalked right off the edge and dropped down hard into the honeysuckle and blue rocks of the place and sprung back to his feet and said, I'm all right, goddammit, and shinnied back up to move some more. And so it is not hard to believe. Lester banged out of his house last week, bored on a Sunday afternoon in August, and wandered in the woods of the mountain as if through some cathedral, so dark with leaves and fiddlehead ferns that light only reaches the ground through a thousand little tunnels. And suddenly at his feet, hop, hop, hopping along comes a crow who says, all right then, all right, how are you? And Lester stops. All right then, how are you? Says the crow again and cocks its head and looks up with its beady eye at Lester who looks away trucks rumble down the mountain hard in the distance and an airplane starts to make a sharp curve a mile above but they don't know anymore about the world for a minute Lester and the crow talking a while he says just shooting the breeze he says that crow knew the names of his father and his grandfather and all kinds of personal shit and he said Lester look at you you've grown middle-aged and fat but I like you anyways and flew back into the trees just to let him think about it. And six other people have talked to this crow, and now it is legend. And that is why I'm sitting in the Mount Hebron Cemetery with the picnic lunch and waiting while the story does its thing, I guess, flying from tree to tree, chasing owls maybe, looking for something shiny, which is why I have lined up 10 dimes and a safety pin on the stone wall to attract some magic to call down the blessing of an impossible thing. All right then, it is getting darker. Let the new life begin. Thank you. Thank you.